You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. We're going to try an experiment next week. I have the honor of interviewing Jennifer Fonstad and Steve Perricone next week. Jennifer's at DFJ, who sponsors this seminar series. She's terrific venture capitalist, as well as one of her CEOs from a waste-to-fuel company. So what we thought we'd do is do a little different twist on this. Um, I'll have some opening questions for them, and my best Oprah or Jerry Springer style. But then, over the next week, uh, starting right now until next Wednesday morning, send us the questions you'd like me to uh, ask them. Uh, and I'll, uh, we'll, we'll compile them, and we'll get to as many as possible. So between now and next Wednesday morning, if you have questions for for uh, either Jennifer or Steve, our speakers next week, um, let us hear from you by just sending a uh, you know, tweet to Twitter at eCorner. Um, that, you know, we're now up on Twitter, as you know. But there is this other uh, you know, uh, internet company that's been making a big buzz, and so why don't we get at it? Um, I want to welcome you all to the Draper Fisher Jervison Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders Seminar Series, brought to you by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and the Business Association of Stanford uh, Entrepreneurship Students, or something like BASIS. <laughs> this talk is broadcast live and archived for future viewing by STPD. The entire series of talks is generously underwritten by uh, DFJ. So uh, do you know anybody that went to Harvard, worked in the Clinton White House, worked at Google as a senior manager, and now works at Facebook? Has anybody in the room done that? <laughs> Oh, I know, there's one, there's one, and that is uh, Sheryl Sandberg. It, it's, it's a real pleasure to welcome her here. She needs no introduction, so I'm not gonna do one. Sheryl? What a great class. They offered no such thing when I was at school. Um, can y'all hear me? Can't tell if the mic's on. Great, okay. Uh, so Tom called me, I don't know, a couple months ago and asked me to do this, and when he asked me, he said, you should come prepared to talk about leadership and entrepreneurship, you know, the kind of things you'd like to pass on to the next generation. And his timing was perfect, because I had just figured out that I was the last generation. Because until right around <laughs> when I joined Facebook, I thought I was the next generation. Um, and I learned this from someone at Facebook. His name is Alex Schultz, and he told me I can proudly use his name uh, describing this. And it happened this way. I joined Facebook. I had been there, I don't know, maybe two months. And I was in a meeting. And it was probably 10 people at the room, in the room. And uh, this guy, Alex, was saying, you know, we need to take into account all different user demographics when we think about this launch. Sounds reasonable. And I'm sitting on this side, and he's sitting here. And then he says, even, you know, older users, like even like middle-aged users. And his hand's kind of moving like here. <laughs> and I'm kind of sitting there. And I kind of pause, and I literally like, time out, time out. Like, Alex, did you just call me middle-aged? <laughs> and he looks at me and goes, yeah, then he goes on with his point. <laughs> so then, to add insult to injury, he follows up with the Wikipedia entrance saying that middle age is 40 to 60, which hits me as a very big range, which hits me hard because I will turn 40 in a couple months. But anyway, since Alex already told me I was the, the last generation, Tom asking me to try to talk to the next generation made a lot of sense. And so I thought about you know, what I wanted to say. What would I pass on if you were trying to be an entrepreneur, if you're trying to be a leader? And I think if you're trying to be those things, what you're really trying to do at a fundamental level is have impact. 
You're trying to have impact. You're trying to have the things you do, the things that you spend your time doing, have impact, meaning change something around the world. And for me, I think the lesson is really simple, and it's particularly important in the era in which we live, and for me, the industry in which I work, which is that this is all about scale. It's all about scale. Having impact is all about how you do something that scales. And by scale, I mean things that can have broad impact, potentially things that have decreasing marginal cost, things that can scale beyond the one-to-one -one interaction you have as a person. And so I'm going to talk to you today about scaling three things, about scaling a vision for a company, about scaling a product, and then about scaling yourself. And some of these lessons apply to different people at different times, but I think these three things together are what enable people to be great entrepreneurs and great leaders. So I'm going to start with the vision. Excuse me. So there's a lot of talk about how to run organizations. And people who are smart about this separate out management and leadership. And they talk about management as things like the science of administering a business. And it has this very best practices kind of uh, theme to it. And I hate those terms. And I can hate them because I was a consultant. So I'm, I always make fun of consultants and business school students because I was both. But it has that very consulting. But it really is the kind of 1 plus 1 equals 2. If I do this, the company does this. If I do this, the company does that. It's a science. And then there's this leadership thing. And this leadership thing always has this kind of more art or more magical idea towards it. And what it is, I think, you know, it's the art of administering a business so that people, uh, sorry, the art of accomplishing more than the science of management teaches you is possible. With management and with authority and with, you know, structures all businesses and organizations have, you can get people to do things. You work for me, I ask you to do A, you're likely to do A. But while you can get compliance, you can't get passion. You can't get true excitement. That's what leadership is. Leadership is helping people or finding a way to convince a group of people that are working together on something, or in some cases aren't working very well together, to follow what the mission is, what you want, to follow whatever it is with true enthusiasm. And it is that enthusiasm which transcends science, which makes it seem like 1 plus 1 equals 3, not 2. So people talk a lot about, well, how do you get there? How do you be a great leader? And I think it's a lot of things, and I don't pretend to have the answer. But it's a bunch of things about who you are as a person. People follow people they respect and trust. If you don't have respect and trust, you don't have any hope of being a great leader. Some of the stuff are skills you can learn. People look at people who are great speakers, who are really convincing orators, and they say, wow, I want to follow that person. People who can tell great stories, great narratives. But when you take all the personal stuff aside, there's something else that's really important to great leadership, which is the purpose of the leadership. And that's what I mean by scaling a vision. That you can lead all day long, but if you're leading people to, you know, make soap, that's important. But does it have that, I want to follow this, I want to, you know, serve this mission until the end of my life, I want to stay up all night and work all day to serve that mission. It's having a great vision that I think becomes the basis of real leadership. And that vision has to be one that scales, that can take you from where you are to the more than foreseeable future. So in my career, this was always really important to me. I always really wanted to work on things that mattered. I started off thinking I would never, ever work in a company, like ever. Probably wrote it, told lots of people, all those embarrassing things you do uh, when you're younger and you're sure, and then you get older 
next generation, last generation transition, and you realize you never really knew then and you probably don't know now. But for me, I was sure I never wanted to work in a company because I wanted to make a difference and I wanted to make someone else's life better if I was going to go to work all day. And so I started my career working on leprosy in India and there's, for the World Bank. And there's nothing like working on something like that to really make you think about what you're doing with your time, the fortune of your birth, and what you have to give back. And then later on, I worked at the U.S. Treasury Department uh, during the Clinton years, during the Asian financial crisis. And while it wasn't the financial crisis of today that's hitting us, it was one that was hitting a lot of people and impoverishing hundreds of millions of people in some of the poorest countries of the world. So it felt very mission-based. And then I completely surprised myself by when I was leaving the government. So if you're in the government and you're a political appointee in the United States, they elect a new president, so they elect George Bush, you know, George W., and then they kick you out, so you have to find a new job. And I found myself really drawn to technology. Because when you were sitting at the Treasury looking at what was happening in the economy, and I was there from 1996 to 2000, so you can, or beginning of 2001, so you can see that amazing time that was. This was when technology really took off on the consumer side and on the internet side. And it just seemed like the companies working out here were making a huge difference, even though they weren't nonprofits. So I decided I was wrong and I would come work, work in these, in, in, you know, and try to get a job in technology. And I went to Google. And my reason for going to Google, Google was a tiny little company, uh, about 250 or so people. People I had worked with told me I was crazy because this was after the bubble burst. You're going to a web-based, ad-supported tech company? Are you insane? Pets.com is over. This is, for those of you who even remember that, this is not, this is not a good idea. But Google had a really compelling mission and a really compelling vision of, of, of achieving that mission. And the mission was to take the world's information and make it universally useful and accessible. To take information that only the elite would have access to and make it accessible. And interestingly enough, there's probably no better example of that than this lecture in this class. Because you know, this is an audience of the elite. These are Stanford students and the neighboring community. And this apparently, these broadcasts, uh, probably not mine, but certainly Steve Ballmer's, there are about five million people who download these things. So this is information that me and other, myself and other guest speakers are giving that would only have been available to the elite that is now available widely. And that was very much the mission of Google. And why I think it's important is to note that it scales. No matter what Google was trying to do, it was about making information accessible. And so that's the kind of thing that motivates people to go above and beyond that makes Larry, Sergey, and Eric and all the people around them great leaders and does it because that vision is compelling. And you don't feel like it's a vision you can finish in the first day. I mean, no one's ever going to organize the entire world's information. So it's a vision that scales, and that is so important to leadership. And then I left and went to Facebook. And I went to Facebook for a very specific reason, and once again, it was very mission-based. Facebook is trying to give people the power to share and make the world more open and connected. And what does that mean? Mark Zuckerberg, our founder, who I think was uh, one of the guests in this lecture a couple of years ago, has a very compelling vision of what needs to change in the world and what was changing. And his vision is that we used to think that you know, we share, got information on the web that was very anonymous. You interact with most websites in a very anonymous way. And so sure, the web made a lot of information available. But the information you care most about is actually about you and your friends. It's what you're doing, your life. And the web 
at the time he founded Facebook, wasn't sharing that information. And that's the vision and the mission. And the vision of how to get there is really, really important. And so for both of these companies, they had visions that scaled. And those visions are usually stated in mission statements. They can be or they cannot be. But it doesn't only have to be you know, technology companies, or certainly not only companies I've worked with. Apple, it is a technology company. But the vision Apple had that Steve Jobs had so many years ago, before many of you were you know, way too young to remember, was taking computing and taking it from something that was accessed by businesses and used by businesses and making it personal. And that seems completely obvious now, because you all have personal computers, and it doesn't even occur to you that you wouldn't. But at the time, that was not obvious. It was not obvious that computing power would be something individuals had. Or think about Starbucks. I just joined the board, so it's something I'm familiar with. Starbucks had a pretty compelling mission early on, which was basically, and they would never say it this way, but God, a lot of the coffee the United States drank at the time was really bad. And there wasn't really this third place. So Howard Schultz came in and bought this tiny little five you know, stores of Starbucks and had a really, really compelling vision about something like coffee, right? A pretty basic thing that was part of people's lives. But he was going to make it better, and he was going to create community along with it. He was going to take, you know, inspire and nurture the human spirit, one person, one cup, and one neighborhood at a time. Or think about Nike. Nike really took the concept of who is an athlete and brought that home. Before Nike, if you thought about great athletics, you were thinking about Tiger Woods or whoever was uh, the Tiger Woods of that generation. Sorry, sports is not my best thing. <laughs> Someone will give me this, this speech for my, for my next quote. But Nike said if you have a body, you're an athlete. If you can buy a pair of shoes, you can just do it and came up with that switch. And it was inspiring. I think about that when I run, and I am not a very good runner. But when I see those ads, I run a little faster that day. And I think that's true of a lot of people, that they said, you can be an athlete too. And the interesting thing about all of these visions is that they scaled. They were visions that these companies set out at the beginning that continue to work. And maybe Apple's has been brought in not just personal computing, but now personal electronics. But it's the same vision, same vision. Make it personal and make it work. And so if you want to be an entrepreneur and you want to be a leader, or you want to be an entrepreneur or a leader or some combination, a vision that scales, that's compelling, is such an integral part of great leadership. And I believe that you can be the most compelling human being ever, but you have to compel people with the why. And the what you're doing is the why. Help us build a community. Help us connect the world. Help us make information accessible. That's compelling. So number two, scale a product. The other day at work, we just hit, Facebook just hit 200 million users, and we were excited about it. And the other day in a meeting, someone had the good idea to come into some meeting with a chart, which had graphs of companies that had hit 200 million users and the time frame in which they had come. And it was great for us because we're really fast, and that felt great. And someone else looked at the chart and said, huh, I wonder about all the other industries. This is only a tech chart. And someone else looked at them and said, of course it's only a tech chart. Until eBay and Amazon and Google and Facebook and companies like that, no one hit 200 million users this fast. It wasn't possible. This is an internet-based phenomenon. And so when you think about a product that scales, you have to think about what the connectivity of the web, and now increasingly mobile, is doing. Because it is allowing scale at a pace and at a size that we've never seen before.
It wasn't possible to hit 200 million users. I'm sure the Standard Oil Company didn't get there. Can't, I'm not even sure there were 200 million people in the country then, right? But they, they couldn't get there. But the other thing that's happened is that along with the ability to scale, the fundamental economics of distribution, not of everything, we still have to distribute water bottles in many ways, the old-fashioned way, have fundamentally changed. And if you're thinking about finding a product that scales, you want to really understand the economics of distribution, and you want to really understand the kind of scale that is possible now. So we'll spend a minute on the economics of distribution. People are spending a lot of time. It's obviously very important to journalists, and I think it's very important to society, thinking and talking about what is you know, old media or traditional media. Are the newspapers going away? Many have gone out of business. Many still are struggling more. What's happening to magazines? What's happening to TV? What's happening to the music industry? And when you think about these business models, these, all of these companies produce very high quality content, content that's very important. I mean, I think we all enjoy music. I think it's fundamental to democracy that we have reporting in a I check facts kind of way, the kind of reporting that can break Watergate, that can take down a president. That stuff matters, and there's an editorial quality that matters. But these business models were built on limited distribution, and that limited distribution has gone away. So you think about distributing the written word. You had to like print stuff, and then you had to like ship it and deliver it to people's homes. And so we lived in a country, and we still do, where there were about um, 1,000 magazine and newspaper companies publishing about 6,700 titles. And today, because distribution of words is free, on the web, there are somewhere between 70 to 100 million blogs, 15.5 of which were updated in the last 90 days. 15.5 million compared to 1,000 magazines and newspapers. Pretty amazing. The reason that's happened is that distribution is free. And when distribution became free, the fundamental economics changed. Same thing happened to music. Distribution used to be expensive. You had to print the discs, and then you had to like, get space in Tower Records, which went out of business. And then you had to compete for that shelf space. And they made a lot of money because people would compete for which shelf space they would. And that's the way people had to buy music. And it, they, were, they were making money not on the content but on the distribution. TV shows, the same thing. There were a very limited number of TV shows. Cable channels opened up. And yes, you got from like, you know, I don't know, five channels or 10 channels to hundreds. But that's still really limited. Not like it is today where you can download, you know, I don't know how many videos on YouTube. And so when you think about products that scale, you have to think about what that scale entails and what the basic business model is of distributing your product or service. I have this t-shirt I really like, and I meant to look up what company gave it to me so I could properly credit them, and I forgot. But it's this orange t-shirt uh, someone gave me at some event that said, make something people want. Like, yeah, make a product people want. Fantastic. But in the new day and age, figure out how to distribute it so that you can cover your costs and make a profit. And remember that you're doing this in a time of absolutely unprecedented scale. That unprecedented scale, the products that scale, are being applied in lots of ways. At Facebook, we translated our site out of English into other languages over the past year, which explains a lot of our growth. Before this, Facebook was only available in English. And the way we did it is just unprecedented in you know, the old world. And now happens all the time. And I think our users are particularly dedicated, so we're a particularly good example. But this is a phenomenon that's occurring with others, which is we put up a translation console and we let our users translate. 
And the first three languages were Spanish, French, and German. And Spanish got translated in two weeks, and French got translated in 24 hours. Users just went on the site and translated from English to French, and then other users went on and checked their translations. And based on, you know, the, uh, the economy, the, you know, the community we built, we had a translated site that people could use. Pretty incredible. And last night at dinner, I sat next to someone who's a senior manager at Intuit, and they put out a product called TurboTax, which is what most small businesses in the country used to credit their taxes. And he said that over the last two years, they changed something really fundamental, which is that they used to have to staff up for the 13 weeks before tax day because that's when everyone did their taxes. So they would hire 1,200 people, get them up to speed on the product so they could have call centers for those weeks. And what they did is they created what they call live community TurboTax. And they had 6 million people over the last, I think, year who answered those questions. And 95% of them were not answered by an expert at all. The community helped each other. Someone got on and said, you know, I'm a single dad. I run a business in this state, and I'm moving it to another. What do I do? And someone else was like, that's me. I did that. Here's how you do use TurboTax for that situation. But when you think about, once again, the distribution cost or the scale you can accomplish online, it's so important. And there are some businesses like Facebook or Google that are online that obviously this is core to their business model. But I maintain, and I think this is true, that there's not an industry out there that shouldn't take advantage of this in some way. TurboTax is still shipping a box. I mean, they have some online customers, but they're shipping a box to a lot of people. But they fundamentally changed their service experience and built a community of 6 million people interacting with each other at the same time by taking advantage of the scale that's available. And if you're an entrepreneur, once again, you want to be an entrepreneur, you want to be a leader, I think not working in this space or not taking advantage of this scale you know, makes no sense because this is where the great opportunity for transformation lies. So whether you're going to start a business or product or give out a product or service, once again, one that people want is a good idea. Make sure you think about scale and you build one that really does scale. Last point, scale yourself. First question is like, what does that mean? You know, read my emails quickly or reply all. I mean, scale yourself. But when you think about having impact and you think about being a student and getting a job or you know, being an entrepreneur and raising funding or getting the next job or changing industries or when you are at work actually having impact, you recognize that none of this happens in your room by yourself. This is all about relationships with other people. And some of those are on the phone and some of those are via chat and some are via Facebook and some are, are, pers- are you know, face-to-face. It doesn't matter. This is all about relationships. So when you think about scaling yourself, what you really want to think about is how do you leverage the connections you have? How do you leverage the relationships you have uh, to really have impact? When I was leaving Treasury, a guy named Josh Steiner had been the Treasury's chief of staff a couple people before me, and I was going to go look for a job, and he gave me great career advice. It was just awesome. He was the only person who said this, and it was so important. He said, Be careful about how you figure out what you want to do and separate people into two buckets. There are the people who can hire you and there are the people who can help you figure out what you want to do and keep those separate. Don't go to someone who could eventually hire you and say, you know, I'm leaving the government, I really want to work in technology, what should I do? That person will help you, but they won't hire you because they'll have figured out what you want to do. And they'll be nice and they'll help you. But 
you know, I found this to be true for myself. There are people that come see me like, hey, I really need advice on what to do, and I help them figure out. But when I'm hiring for a job, I know I need someone to do like whatever this, whatever it is. And the person who's just so much more likely to get hired is the person who walks into my office and is like, I want to do this. I want to tell you why I want to do this. I want to tell you why I'm going to be good at this, maybe not in such an aggressive tone of voice. <laughs> but they've figured it out. Now, with person A, where I could have been this person, you've gone back and forth. Here are the pros of working in technology. Here are the cons. Here are the pros of doing operations, the cons. Here's why I want to do marketing. You just don't sound that dedicated. And when you go meet the person, and so I really did that. When I was coming out here and you know, looking for a job and trying to convince someone they should hire me, I really was really careful to separate that out. And I asked my friends and peers, OK, what does marketing mean? Like, what do you do? Tell me what you do today. And then when I finally figured out what I wanted to do, I was able, I was able to be focused. I think people get a lot of really bad advice about how to, how to create mentors. Particularly in business school, once again, I'll make fun of it because I went, and I think sometimes at firms like consulting firms. And the bad advice is that you know, people say things like, connections really matter, you really need to know people, or you need mentors. And then people like march into someone's office and are like, will you be my mentor? To which you like want to say yes, like you say sure, of course, because we're all nice people and you want to help, but what do you do with that exactly? Like, what does that mean? How do you mentor? You know, when I was at Google, um, there would be lots of people who would like come see me, and I really tried my best to see everyone I could, even though it gets hard, and you'll all find that, as you already probably have. Um, and some people would come and say, you know, I just joined Google, and I was told it would be really great to get to know you, so I'd like to get to know you. And those were great conversations. Happy to meet people, happy to help them think about things. And then some people would work at Google for six months, and they would have a problem or an issue or an idea, and they would say, I've been here for six months, I'm working on this. I've talked to everyone. It seems that there's this one unanswered question. I'd really like to talk to you. <coughs> that second experience was just a better use of my time. And I don't mean that in a mean way. I had a lot of respect for that person because I learned something in that meeting. And they came to me with a really good use of my time. I joke, I have a colleague, who says, uh, a colleague from Google who says that she gets these emails where people say, you know, you worked at whatever firm she worked at or you went to my school. I'd like to come here and talk about Google's culture. She's like, read an article, right? Come here, come talk to me when you've like, learned things and you have more compelling questions. And I think it's really important when you think about scaling yourself to think about leverage in your own relationships. Use people's time really wisely. Do research. Know the products before you interview. Find out everything you can from someone else so that you don't have to say, be my mentor you're so interesting or so thoughtful that someone volunteers. And those are the best relationships. I think as you continue throughout your career, we all have to think about the flip side of that, which is you know, not just how do we find people to mentor us, but how do we mentor people. And I think finding ways to find groups of people that you can help is so important. Because we all thought, I mean, I've had a lot of help to you know, get to different stages in my career. And I feel a very you know, deep desire to give that back. And as I get kind of, you know, more experience and I have, you know, now two kids and all these other things pulling at me, I really want to do that in a way uh, that adds value and has some leverage. I think for all of us at every stage in our career, there's also something really deep to think about in terms of how we interact. Once again, how do you scale yourself in compelling ways? 
And then this I'll mention two thoughts. And there are two thoughts I learned from a man named Fred Kaufman I have a great deal of respect for, who runs a consulting firm called Exilient. And Fred was an MIT professor. He was an accounting professor. And he uh, learned you know, tons of stuff about accounting. And then one day he realized that, wow, all the really hard things are not about accounting. They're all about how people interact, how they scale themselves vis-a-vis -vis other people. And he talks about two concepts I think are really important. And the first is authentic communication, and the second is what he calls being a player, not a victim. If you have children, and I do now, you note, you actually learn from them almost how dishonest every adults are all the time. <laughs> so uh, my favorite story is my friend Beth. This is a true story. She was pregnant, and she had a five-year-old. And the five-year-old said to her, you know, Mommy, where's the baby? She was like, no, the baby's in my tummy. He was like, Mommy, like, where's the baby? She was like, well, the baby's in my tummy. Like, well, Mommy, aren't the baby's arms in your arms and the baby's legs in your legs and all that? And she was like, no, no, the whole baby's in my tummy. And then, you know, her five-year-old looked at her and said, then, Mommy, what's growing in your butt? <laughs> and kids are really honest. I mean, my four-year-old would be like, Mommy, that's an ugly shirt. Or, Mommy, I don't like that story. And as we get older, Polite society teaches us to have better manners. And we don't walk around telling pregnant women that their butts look big. Please <laughs> learn that lesson. I'm not suggesting that. And we don't walk around just blunting out the blunt truth, but we're more polite. But you have to ask yourself if you're in a group, whether it's a friend group or a family circle or in a business that you're trying to lead as an entrepreneur, how do you get to the truth? How do you make great decisions when no one's saying the truth? How do you communicate authentically? How do you figure out what to say and what not to say in a way that's authentic? And what Fred says, and I really believe this is true, is it starts from the fundamental understanding that there is no truth. There's my truth, there's your truth, that everything is subjective. And so if you always start from the position of, this is what I believe, I don't expect you to believe it, I don't think you have to believe it, I'm not saying it's true, you can actually always communicate authentically. Because if you walk in the room, and this gets worse as you get more senior, here's the answer. You're not giving anyone else any room to say anything. And if you walk in the room and say, I believe this for this reason. What do you believe? If you share your truth in that language, you give people room to authenticate, to communicate authentically. And that is hugely important to these relationships at any stage. The second thing he talks about a lot is being a player, not a victim. And if you listen, you realize, once again, to children or to others, that children speak in a passive voice when something they don't like happens. Mommy, the toy broke. Interesting. You were on this side of the room. The toy just up and broke, right? Just up and broke. I didn't do anything. The toy broke. That same person comes to work. The project didn't get finished. Shocking. The project didn't finish itself, right? How often do people use the passive voice? Now, there is no such thing as complete control. Nothing. No one has complete control in any situation. People that leading organizations in some ways have less because not only do they have to control what they do, they have to help persuade everyone else what they do. But, you know, if you are able to take responsibility, I'm not late because there was traffic. I'm late because I didn't leave early enough to account for the fact that there was traffic. The project didn't get finished, not because my friend, the, my partner didn't do it, my colleague didn't do his part. The, the 
project didn't get finished because I didn't set up a team where my colleague wanted to do his part. When you take responsibility and you take full responsibility, that is the most empowering thing and you can do it at any stage. You have to do it if you're raising money as an entrepreneur, you have to do it if you're, if you're trying to persuade people to work with you, you have to do it at all stages. And it is in that authentic communication and it is in that taking full responsibility that we really find the power to scale ourselves and have the kind of impact we want to have. It's an incredible time to be here. Like just an incredible time. An incredible time for me to be working where I'm working and I feel so lucky. An incredible time for you to be at Stanford which sits so much at the heart of all this. Things are changing so quickly. Most people are familiar with Moore's Law. Complexity of an integrated circuit will double every 18 to 24 months. Similar laws, and I think some of them are called criders and others, apply to digital storage. And if you apply that same law out, if you take something that's the size of an iPod, you decide that by 2014, an iPod, which holds 10,000 or so songs today, probably that's outdated, it probably holds more, it could hold a year of video, no repeats. No repeats, 24 hours a day, an entire year of video. And by the 2016, which is only two years later, it could hold all the commercial music ever produced, ever. Here, all music ever produced. And by 2024, it could be 85 years of video, no repeats. Pretty amazing. Now, I'm not saying any of that will happen because there are huge IP and business constraints to something like that happening. But technology will not be the constraint anymore as it was. And in that, in that fundamental understanding, comes the ability to come out of school or come out of the community and have a career and impact which really scales. If you have a vision that's motivating and makes people want to follow and engage and scales, you don't have to redo it every year. If you have a product that people want that takes full advantage of the lower distribution costs that now exist, and if you are able to scale yourself so that you're communicating authentically, so that you're taking responsibility and empowering the people around you and others, that's, I think, those are, I think, the seeds of what is going to be the great entrepreneurial leaders of our time. I look forward to them coming out of this class. Thank you. Uh, Q&A. Yeah. In what ways would you recommend using this unprecedented scale to address humanitarian issues like leprosy, like what you were doing when you were younger? So I'm supposed to repeat the question for the mic. Um, the question was, given this kind of unprecedented scale, how do you uh, do this, you know, to do humani to work on humanitarian issues? I think in lots of ways. I think the spreading of information makes things closer. You know, let's compare, uh, let's have a very depressing topic, Darfur to the Holocaust, right? Pretty similar, genocide, awful, awful, awful thing. You know, Google put up a map, <laughs> which was a layer on Google Maps, which showed all the villages, like precisely. These are the villages, you know, where this happened. You could look. It's incredible. Go look at it. It wasn't until World War II ended and, like, troops marched in with old-fashioned cameras that anyone was able to see what was really going on. You know, did that stop Darfur sooner? God, I hope so. Should it have stopped it even faster? Yeah. You know, but I think, you know, the first thing is that where there's information, there's light. 
and you know where there's transparency problems can get fixed and we still have them we have them in spades across lots of industries across lots of countries um, the other thing is that it's much easier to get involved in a direct way you know I've actually uh, done some writing and speaking on charity and one of the hard things about charity particularly in this country is that it largely transfers from the rich to the rich no one thinks about it that way but U.S. individual citizens give about, I don't know, 250 to $300 uh, billion every year away in charity. And the majority of it goes to temples and churches and educational institutions and um, healthcare institutions. But very little of that money, you know, it's kind of like less than 10 cents on the dollar at churches or, you know, goes to the food bank. And less than 10 cents on the dollar at educational institutions goes for scholarships. And less than 10 cents on the dollar at health institutions goes to target the poor. And so... That's basically because people give to the things they can see and touch and feel. And I think there are some great things happening online that really make you feel and touch and see. One of the greatest ones is Donors Choose. If you're not familiar with it, go look at it. This amazing guy, Charles Best, came up with, you know, here, you want to help. He was a school teacher, and, you know, he didn't have the basic materials. And, you know, he made it very personal. If you go on Donors Choose, you can sort by income, and you can, like, donate $100 or $5 or $5,000, whatever you want, and buy, you know, books for this class in Harlem. And then, and it's an amazing experience, worth donating $10 just to have it. And then the class sends you thank you notes, and they show you what they bought. And so you don't travel to Harlem every day if you live here. But that made it really personal. And so I think with the humanitarian stuff, it's about creating what economists would call the visible victim, making it personal, and then giving people a way to connect. Yeah? Um, on that subject of mission, and, and uh, uh, you did a great job of talking about relating a sense of mission to what you're doing with Facebook, what you did with Google, presidential administration, of course, and then, of course, the World Bank. But also, in your background, were two things that are probably in the future of a lot of people in this room, an MBA and consulting. And I was just wondering, uh, when you went to Harvard, when you were at McKinsey, did you have that sense of mission yet and use them as a tool, or did that come later? Um, I went to business school because I was interested in organizations, because I was interested in leverage and scale. You know, the concept that you know, you can do more with a group of people than you can. And so the administration of a business, the creating of a community is the stuff I'm actually most interested in. So that's why I went to business school, even though I'd only done nonprofit work before that. Um, McKinsey uh, was, you know, a different experience. I actually did uh, the McKinsey Global Institute stuff mostly when I was there. So I was pretty focused then, too. Yeah. Did you get a chance to see the Wall Street Journal did an article today by coincidence that was on Facebook? Did I have not it? yet did seen you have it. Any comments on it? Mm. I haven't seen it, so I can't comment. But I've had a pretty awful day. Not awful, but you know, busy. So sorry. But I hope it was good. Maybe it wasn't, if you're asking me for comments. <laughs> Somebody did a study, but they also admitted that uh, more research had to be done, so it wasn't conclusive, but they said um, that they believed in this first study that if you were on Facebook, your grades were lower than if you weren't on Facebook. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the first thing I'd say is the most common mistake made in studies is uh, mistaking uh, uh, causation, correlation for causation. Let's start there. 
Um, and I honestly can't comment because I haven't seen it. So there was another hand. Yeah. Uh, I think you did answer a little bit of this, but uh, do you think your career path when you were young, when you were very young? <laughs> Even younger than me. You didn't mean it that way. More yeah. planned or it's more opportunistic? Yeah, you know, when people ask me, the question is, when I was even younger, I'm adding that even, it was just young, um, in there, it's fine, I've gotten over it, Alex Schultz uh, toughened me up, I can deal with anything now. Um, you know, did, was your career more opportunistic or was it planned? You know, and this I feel very strongly, I always say the same thing. I think in careers you need two things. You need a long-run dream and a short-term plan. And a short-term plan, I don't know if it's a year or two years, but it's like between 12 and 24 months, it's not longer. The stuff in between is a big waste of time at best and completely anxiety-producing and counterproductive at worst. And that's true at every stage. It's true at my stage. So, you know, long-run dream. If you want to cure cancer, like, don't go to business school. Go get your PhD in science. You know, if you want to be, if you want to be a physicist, you know, don't work at McKinsey, right? You want a long-run dream that's aligned with some way and shape what you're doing. And then you need a plan for what am I doing this year or in the next year or two where I'm learning and growing and building not my resume, because that's silly, but my skills. My, 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 my ability to get things done, my ability to scale, my ability to motivate people. If you try to connect the dots, you really limit yourself. So if I had tried to connect uh, those dots when I graduated from college in 1991, I wouldn't be here because there was no internet, scary though that is. I like saying that at Facebook because people get that look, no internet? Were there horses too? No, we had cars, we just didn't have an internet. But you really don't want to connect the dots. And if you are going to connect the dots, you can go to GE, you could go to what was, I think, not anymore, the old IBM, you can go to McKinsey, you can go to Goldman, you can go to places with very set career paths where they can tell you, here's what four years looks like, six years looks like, eight years looks like. But outside of very few careers, that stuff in between is really, is really confusing. And it produces anxiety and I think makes people worse performers. Because if you're the person who's not worried about what you're doing today and what you're learning and growing, but always looking at the next thing, you know, it's a little Buddhist, but you're just not living in the moment. You're probably not contributing as much or learning as much as you could. Yeah. Um, I was curious, why did you title the second part of your talk, um, Scale Your Product, Not Scale Your Business? Because I think it can apply not only to businesses, but the examples I gave were all business, so that would have been a fair title. Okay. It was more about the product. So I think... You know, as I work at Facebook, I spend a lot of time talking internally about scaling specific products because it's in scaling products and processes that we scale the business. So businesses are a function of lots of stuff. Every business has some similarities. They have to acquire customers. They have to give customers something. They have to acquire users. It's each one of those individual products or I should have said products or processes that scale that create a scaled business. If you try to just create a scaled business, I think you miss the kind of building blocks, if that makes sense. That's a good question. Yeah. yeah. Um, so just given like the scale of information that is you know, brought about by Google, Facebook, all these different tech companies, um, what do you think can be done for like, especially by technology companies to um, solve like a desensitized of information, you know, to people. Like, you know, I'm just thinking as a specific example, like for humanitarian stuff, some people I know, they say, you know, I've seen so many terrible things, I've got so much information about terrible things that when I see something terrible, it's like, <coughs> here we go again, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, 
the question, I think, did everyone hear the question? Do I have to repeat it? No, okay. The question was, given uh, the preponderance of so much information, how do you, you know, prevent against that information desensitizing people? You know, our question asker asks, you know, says, I know people who say, God, I've seen so many terrible things, I, I just, I don't know how to process that anymore. So economists have a concept called the visible victim. And the visible victim means someone, you, it's visible, the victim is visible. And it's interesting, so I don't remember the numbers exactly, but the tsunami, which happened a couple years ago, killed a certain number of people, a couple hundred thousand. And uh, every year, it's more like 5 or 10% of Americans give money overseas, and some huge percentage of Americans donated to the tsunami, just huge, like over 70%. And what's interesting is every six weeks, the same number of children die in this world of unclean water. And every kind of five and a half weeks, the same number of people die in this world, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, of AIDS. But those victims aren't visible because it's like six million children every six weeks or five and a half million people every six weeks of AIDS. But the tsunami was so visible. We all watched it you know, in horror on our TVs, this huge wave just devastating people's lives. And so I think the answer is to make the victims visible because I don't believe people get insensitized to the specific. They get insensitized to the big numbers. It's almost impossible to process six million children dying. It's too sad and too hard. I don't know what six million anything looks like. It's, you would never let a child die in front of you. Like if a child were like dying right there and you could save them, there's no one who wouldn't do it. And so it's that process, I think, of using information to make it visible. And the donors choose thing again is a good example. I think that has to happen. Yeah. Uh, you talked a little bit about the scale of, you know, for example, the iPod. And I'm interested in um, uh, hearing your perspective on the scale of the Internet. So, you know, we can take, a, we can take advantage of um, the Internet and its power to reach so many people today. But what do you see um, being the capabilities and maybe even the uses of Internet in 2020 or 2040? Just because it's hard with information. Now we have maps. Now we have, you know, um, video chat or you know, the mass control. Uh, so the question was, you know, what do I think is going to evolve in terms of, you know, the Internet, like in 2020 or, or further? And God, I don't have a great answer to that. I mean, I think there are some obvious, you know, things to say, which is, one, a lot of the world's population is not connected. We still live in a world where 2 billion people live on less than $2 a day, and they don't have electricity or clean water, and they certainly don't have the Internet. And by the way, as Bill Gates understood better than anyone else, they don't need the Internet. They don't need connectivity. It, the digital divide is not the answer. Clean water is the answer because that's going to change you know, childhood mortality. And by the way, once you've got clean water and electricity, getting the Internet would be terrific. But let's you know, start with the building blocks. So we are a long way away from connecting the whole world. And I think you know, the, evolutionary of the, the evolution of the economy, which gets people up that ladder, is so important. And, you know, we'd like to live in a world where everyone had at least access to some of the basic human necessities that we all deserve, and then access to the information that's being created. So you're definitely seeing huge economic development in India and China and other poor parts of the world. I mean, what's happening in China was unimaginable when I was in school. And what's happening in India was unimaginable when I started working there in 1992. And so, you know, that I think you'll see a real change. And I think increasingly, you know, this once again is a pretty obvious point, but what is the internet and connectivity changes so dramatically with mobile devices. I think that in 2020, the difference between your PC and your phone and your iPod, there is none. I mean, there's almost none today. But there's particularly none really quickly. 
And so thinking about what we do, what businesses like ours do, as we evolve, businesses for Google, all of these businesses, I think is really important. Yeah. Uh, so my question is, uh, thinking of more in short term, what, what do you think Facebook can evolve into a few years from now? Will it, will it be bigger than email tomorrow? Will it be like e-presence that everyone needs to have when he's on the internet? So what, what, are, what are you guys in the management of Facebook uh, yeah. think? What's the vision? So clearly I haven't uh, read everything that's out there today yet, but I did see something that said that Facebook was bigger than email. Someone put out something that said Facebook is bigger than email today. I haven't seen it, so I don't know what it is or it's valid. Um, you know, what we are trying to do is, as I said before, give people the, you know, the power to share and connect. And you know, what we had started out with was a website where you could have a profile and you could look around and find other people's profiles and connect to people you knew on a very, like, I go to your profile page type of way. And then we evolved to what was our newsfeed launch, which actually took information for the people you were connected to and pushed information to you. And at its time, there were a lot of protests and a lot of like, oh my God, what is this? But it really fundamentally changed the way people interacted with information because it was the first time I think a, a website at scale was pushing information to people. And now we've opened up, a la Facebook Connect, to other sites. So what we are trying to do is not just like get everyone to connect and share on Facebook. We're trying to provide the technology with which you can share. And the best example, or one of the leading examples of the Facebook Connect product to date was what we did with CNN, if people have, a lot of people saw it, so it's a good one to mention, in the inaugural, which is if you were at home watching CNN.com online, you could actually authenticate in and you could share you know, your thoughts with your Facebook friends right online. So it took what was a uh, you know, very anonymous experience and be able to share. And so what we want to do over the next bunch of years is exactly that, is help more people share more things in a more, in a more compelling way. Help them do it on Facebook, help them do it off Facebook. Help them, help them you know, connect not just you know, to the people they met yesterday, but the people they met tomorrow, and in some cases to the people they want to meet or they want to follow. That's what we're evolving towards. Yeah. It's so interesting. I get this question all the time. N not in its current structure. Oh, the question, sorry. Is there a point we'll have to pay to use Facebook? You know, I've said this publicly and it's been quoted a lot. We have no plans to charge for the basic service. If you're a reporter, you then look at me and say, what's the basic service? <laughs> and I look back at you and say, like Facebook as you know it today. You know, I don't know what's going to evolve. I'm big on not predicting the future. It's part of why I'm still, you know, standing uh, through the days. So, you know, I don't know, and I never say never, but we have absolutely no plans to charge for any of our basic services. So, yeah. So how do you take this scalable vision that you talked about and share it and use it to, like, motivate people like Well, Facebook Mark really does that because he's the founder and he's very much the embodiment of that vision. And he does it in a very compelling way because... He's been doing it and been talking about it. But then it's up to all of us who work with him, from me on to you know, the rest of the company, to understand. Um, I think the way you do it is you try to make it connect to people's lives. So, you know, when and people's work. So if someone's working on something, you know, it is generally seen as a good thing if they explain while this will, why this will lead to more sharing, right? Now, you also then do, and the business school answer is you set up metrics, sharing metrics. Uh, metrics are tricky because you have to get them right. You know, people really will run towards metrics, and you want to make sure you get the right metrics. We're working right now at Facebook on thinking of our business as you know the top 
metric that is kind of motivating us and we're working towards is you know kind of the number of items shared through Facebook or the amount of sharing and we're working on exactly what that metric will be. Yeah. I was just at a meeting with John Chambers. He was speaking at the RSA conference and he was start, he has started to blog, but he was asking people what do you think is most important uh, innovation or execution, excellence of execution. And for Cisco he said it was excellence of execution. What is your viewpoint? Um I feel like it's an, oh, sorry. The, if you only could pick one. Yeah, the question was, he, he just saw John Chambers speak, um, and he was asked the question, what's more important, innovation or execution? And, and they do both. And they do both. And his answer was execution? Yeah, if you only could pick one. If you only could pick one, you could pick execution. I think, I think if you can only, I, I reject the question. My son, I say, do you want you know, ice cream or cake? I want ice cream and cake. I reject the question. I want innovation and, and execution. But if I have to answer the question, I'm going to go with execution for the same reasons. Because there is no substitute for it. Now, you have to innovate. Otherwise, what are you executing? Uh, but companies, as they grow, grow have to execute. And in some ways, there are great companies. Uh, Facebook's not one of them. We do all of our own development. But there are great companies out there that actually just buy innovation and execute. They wait till someone else innovates, and then they buy that, and then they... And Cisco's one of them. Exactly. Good point. So, so it's a good answer for him. All right, I want ice cream and cake. I, I reject the question. Let's do one more. One more? Or two more. Two more? Two more? Would you say there's a trade-off as a leader between connecting with few people to a very profound level and connecting to a lot of people at a more superficial level? And if so, uh, what do you think would be the balance in that trade-off? Sure. I mean, you can like walk around giving speeches all... Sorry, the, the question was... Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> the question was, uh, as a leader, do you think there's a trade-off between connecting in a deep way with few people or connecting in you know, a broader way with more people? And the answer is yes. We actually look at this on Facebook. There are people who we talk about, like, well, do we want people to share more with their intimate friends, or do we want people to share more with lots of people? And we have, like, the cake and ice cream answer. Yes, we want both, <laughs> which is always not an answer to the question. You know, you divide your time. You know, I think, I'm hoping, I'm trying at least to be here for an hour and connect with more people, right? Or I could be in a meeting with one person helping them think through their career. Um, I, I try to do both. You know, I think for me and lots of other people, the one-on-one -on -one stuff is, you know, it, it feels really important. I would hate to have a job where I didn't have a lot of that in it because it's the people around you that really matter. All right, last question. I feel like there were hands. Two more. Okay, I'm trying to pick hands up right before. Yeah. You've had a lot of success in your career, but I'm curious as to what have been some of the challenges or obstacles um, or disappointments that you've had to overcome and how you've overcome them. So the question was, uh, what are the kind of challenges or obstacles I've had to overcome in my career? Oh, lots of them. I moved out uh, to the Valley, and uh, you know, I'd been in the government, and I, I got a meeting through a board member with uh, someone who was running a really important company I would have really liked to work with. And the person looked at me and said, two minutes into the meeting, I would never hire someone like you. But a board member, because you worked in the government, so you don't know anything, and uh, a board member asked me to meet with you, so like, this is your half hour, what do you want to do with it? I was like, whoa. You know, and I had a bunch of those meetings, actually. You know, there were some meetings which were, you know, wow, you're different and unusual, and, you know, it'll be great for you to come in here. And some meetings were like, guys, like, there's a recession here, and you have no relevant experience. Like, what are you doing here? And so definitely I think that transition was a hard one. It took me a long time uh, to find Google and find a job and figure out what I wanted to do, months, months longer than I wanted it to take. 
And, you know, there have been lots of setbacks. I was the proud uh, helper to own. I was, uh, my friend Susan and I were the proud, you know, people who are behind Google Answers, the only product they ever shut down as of like a year ago. We believed in it. We worked on it. We worked on it through her maternity leave, through mine. Literally, as of like, I don't know, two years ago, it was the only product Google had ever shut down. Uh, you know, I think there are lots of them, and you just try to figure out, and lots of mistakes made along the way, you just try to figure out. All right, last question. I want to pick a hand that was up um, before. Yeah. Can you comment on um, these scaling communities? Will they keep generating sustainable profits? Um, because we're seeing a company like Yahoo is struggling, and that was kind of one of the first scaling communities. And then you also look at a new company like Twitter, I'm not sure whether they can, you know, whether they yeah. generate The question was, can I comment on scalable communities and will they continue to generate profits? So Yahoo was one example, uh, you know, and Twitter, two communities. Um, I don't know exactly how to answer the question because I'm not sure those companies are communities. Exactly. I, I think Yahoo definitely talks about itself as building a community. I think in some ways they have, but I don't believe, if you ask them, what they are, they won't say we're a community site. They won't say we build communities. They, what I've heard said, uh, both by Jerry and Sue before and Carol now, is they've said, we're the place you start and end your day on the internet. So I think it's more of an information play than a community. Um, I think both of those companies, right, it's a great example of you know, one of the older traditional companies, now traditional, amazing, in, uh, in the web space, and then one of the newer, the newer ones. And business model uh, challenges exist on both ends. And you can see it uh, with both companies. I think they exist. They exist for all the companies. And the real thing for all of us to think about is, once again, what are the fundamental economics? Where's the value in what you're delivering? And you know, where are the, sustain the sustainable parts of that model? So thank you all. Uh, this was great fun. <laughs>